Welcome to episode 41 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Um, what do we have for people this fortnight, Tom? We're talking about lizards. Lizards. What type of lizards? Skinks. Skink lizards. Skinkids. One of the more powerful forms of lizard. Yes, propelled by small legs. Um, and uh, we're talking about ones which have got sort of, well, social interactions going on. Not necessarily what you'd expect from a lizard. Generally, you think of lizards as quite stoic, uh, quite sort of <laughs> lonesome. Stoic, lone skink, looking yeah, over well, the horizon. Just sort of yeah. overseeing the creek. But um, in this case, they've uh, they've got pals. They're doing kinds of different kinds of things based on their sort of um, yeah, they're sort of watching each other, learning some stuff, socialising, and uh, yeah, there's a couple of really cool papers, both very recent, that have come out, um, mm. which are really kind of pushing the bounds of uh, what we understand about lizard sociality. This is like very much like the cusp of, well, whether or not it's the cusp, but it's sort of the cutting edge of lizard understanding. So yeah, pretty exciting topic. Yeah, how smart are lizards? What do they do? How do they socialise? How does that sociality influence uh, their sort of cognitive abilities, their problem solving? Yeah, and why why is this happening? Like, yeah, Although how is it beneficial? It's probably it's probably worth caveating at the beginning. This isn't like a skink solving a maze or a skink, uh, I don't know, doing one of those weird chimp puzzles where it's got push the right button when a picture comes out. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, yeah. they're lizard level. You- Tests. This is this is this is uh, baseline stuff. Yeah, so if you're get expecting all like the Alan Turing of skinks, yeah, you get yeah. a temper temper your expectations. They're yeah. not. Yeah, they're not um, decoding incredibly complex axis of evil codes. They're just kind of learning how to open lids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but oh boy, do they get good at it! Oh, oh yeah, boy. oh they do. Yeah, you want your lid opened? We know a lizard for you. That's it. And then we talk a little bit about maternal effects, which are absolutely bonkers, which we'll get into later on, which is... Yeah, a little bit of things that are influencing how smart some of these lizards are. Yeah, yeah just uh, crazy stuff, which um, it's a lot to take in. So uh, prepare yourselves. Okay. Hmm. I'm prepared. Should we start <laughs> paper one? <laughs> yes. So should I introduce it? <laughs> yeah, go for it, mate. Okay. Whiting Zoo... Carr, Riley, Byrne, and Noble, 2018, Evidence for Social Learning in a Family Living Lizard. And this was published in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. So, um, yeah, we're talking about Egernia striolata, which is a delicious name. Sounds like a dessert. But it's also known by other names, the tree skink, the tree tree, tree crevice skink. So um, that gives you an idea of its ecology. Oh, well, yeah, it's kind of like a tree skink, but it's more like a tree crevice skink. Mm. I love the distinction. Yeah. I presume there's another skink that lives in trees, and that'll be the tree branch skink. Possibly a, another one that's a, the tree stem. Stem? What are those things? Trunk? <laughs> the stem of that tree. Wow. <laughs> tree, your stem, so thick. <laughs> Well, you can see what I don't study, and that's trees. Look at the <laughs> look at the gnarled bark on this stem. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically the same thing, sort of maybe, it is but not really. Yeah, no, I would. Yeah, I think um, the tree is the, the the trunk is the stem. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know why they get all special trunks are stems, but not all stems are trunks. I think it's because yes. trunks have woody, woody tissue, right? Mm, yeah, stems yeah, they've got don't. that. They've got that sweet, sweet wood, um, which is made of something potentially slightly different than stem. <laughs> anyway, free skinks. <laughs> yes, What's aka the, whole the Heidi point of being smart. Why? Why would it benefit a tree skink? Because if you're cleverer and you're clever enough to watch somebody else do something, you can obtain benefits because it's like a shortcut to learning. Hmm. And you don't have to expose yourselves to the risks of making a bad decision. You can just you can you can sit in the bushes and watch this other tree skink try and get a bit of food, and it gets taken by a hawk, and you're like, ah, exposed areas, dangerous. Yeah, it's that. like, it's it's just a shortcut. So, yeah, it's like if you, you know, if someone goes in front of you through a door, you know those doors which are like push doors, but they have a handle on? So uh, you think, is that a pull door? Set up, push door? set up to dupe you, yeah. Yeah, and if you see someone go through ahead of you, you're like, haha, it's a push, not catching me out handle, and then you go straight through. Whereas, had you not seen that person do it, You'd struggle with the door, maybe for 10 or 15 seconds, and that would <laughs> decrease your fitness. <laughs> 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so these are social skinks. And um, yeah, before we get too much into them, should we talk a little bit about the skink themselves? Um, I, that's all you, man. I, I know nothing about these tree skinks. I have some stuff on the theory behind the learning things, but I don't have any details on what these tree skinks look like, do, or uh, even okay. really where they live. Okay, so it's a skink, which most people will be familiar with. Quite smooth, smooth to the touch. Um, gives birth to live young. Um, obviously, it's kind of a lizard. It's got legs. Uh, went on the IUCN website to go and have a look, as I often do, to learn a bit about its ecology, maybe what it looks like, its range. But the uh, new ICN website makes my face ache. Um, <laughs> so I didn't stay there for very long. Um, oh, man. The, yeah, Such a shame. The, it's like five words on the screen. I was scrolling all over the place. Couldn't make head nor tail of it. The range map doesn't work. Don't know why they've changed the IUCN website because it was great before. I thought um, it was good before, but whatever. Yeah. Now it's just sheer pain. So um, left there. Still none the wiser as to where this lizard actually comes from. Um, I did actually look elsewhere. It, comes in, it occurs in Western Australia. So um, it's kind of like the dry... Well, not dry, but it's sort of like the, the western coast and then inland quite a bit. It doesn't extend as far north as like the fun jungly wet bit at the top or as far as Melbourne in the south. So like Sydney goes a bit further south than Sydney and that's it. Um, it's like brown and yellow and it's got sort of indistinct large stripes across from its head down its body. Uh, these like nice white flecks um, and it's got... A yellow face so it actually doesn't look dissimilar to an escalapian snake oh which escalapian skink yeah um but yeah so they're sort of a medium-sized skink kind of looks like a everyone's familiar with a blue tongue skink it looks a little bit like a miniature blue tongue skink and they're not what that the related cool what with the yellow face yeah so do you want to talk about their sociality a little bit have you looked at the ducket paper um the witch paper Okay, you go with what you've got, and I'll go what I've got after. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna sort of bring up the point that we made the case for sociality being a benefit, right? Yes. But there's a trade-off. There's always a trade-off because it's nature. You can't just mm. have the best uh, 
best solution for a problem and run with it. You've always got to have something sneaking up behind to stab you in the back. So let's say you've got loads of sociable lizards and they're all learning from each other. The fewer individuals you have learning from direct experience tends to dilute uh, the actual quality of knowledge that's being passed around. Right? So it's, I thought of it like Chinese whispers where one lizard's passing on knowledge to another and another's learning from another, but the further it gets from the actual reality of the situation, the potentially worse that knowledge is. So you've got these mm. two, um, uh, what's, what's the word? Drivers? Yeah. Selective two. pressures, I suppose. One pushing for more sociality and the other sort of countering that. So exactly how beneficial is sociality in these lizards is really a toss-up and actually requires some work to find out whether it's beneficial enough to be sustained and actually continues to exist or isn't worth the effort and the additional uh, cost of having a smart brain. (laughs) Good cognitive Mm. ability. I don't know the right term, but uh, if you're not getting any benefits, what's the point? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting, um, and so these lizards are well known to be social themselves. Um, there was a paper in 2012 by Duckett, which is one I alluded to, um, and they showed that skinks collected together in trees, and in the trees where they were found, there was lots of trees where there weren't skinks, but there were quite a few trees where there were, and in the trees where there were groups of skinks, they were often family, so they were usually mm. sort of. Um, either parents and offspring or half-siblings all living together. Um, so they're sort of family group, social skinks. And um, there's other, there's also other um, social skinks in the genus. So Agernia stokesi and Agernia cunningami are also palling around in groups. Um, there was a theory that this behaviour evolved because there was a lack of availability of good shelter sites. So all the skinks got pushed together and then as a way of sort of dealing with the close proximity, they all became friends. Uh, <laughs> but as opposed to becoming cannibals. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But Duckett and all didn't actually like that theory. They said that skinks probably receive other benefits. So you alluded to the benefits of um, social learning. One is, uh, well, at least the benefit of living a group is predator avoidance. You know, the many eyes hypothesis we talked about before. If you've got loads of pals around that are looking out for danger, mm. you're more likely to Watch see the skinks. danger coming. Yeah, exactly. And um, there was an experiment on some captive skinks and uh, they showed that skinks kept in groups were less skittish and spent longer time basking than skinks, which were kept solitary. So it kind of puts them at ease. They feel empowered to bask for longer if they got their friends around, um, you know, which is only instinct. If you have your mates, just go and chill out under the heat light, don't you? That's what you do. Mm. So, um, yeah. So they are social animals. Um the evolution of the sociality thing is a bit of a mystery. Well, this is what I was saying with the sort of selective things. It's, 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 yeah. It's there are so many part. different bits affecting how social they are and how beneficial the sociality is that it's yeah. quite hard to tease apart. Because if yeah. you're all just copying one person, then you know, you, you know, you're all doing the same thing and no one's going out there and learning anything new. It's like you say, you can only ever have a small percentage of the population actually doing the... Um, viewing and learning. Um, yeah, it's but what's be a interesting about these? Yeah, what's interesting about these um, tree crevice skinks is that even I mean we've already kind of alluded to it. Even within the species, many of them aren't sociable. There are lots that exist by themselves. It's still only a proportion that are living in social groups. So 
there's like a lot of variety out there in the way they behave. Um, mm. And it's not, it's, it's very much not one, you know, sociality isn't like the pinnacle of their evolution. It's just like one option that some of them are doing some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a diverse skink world. Mm, it really is. Skinks. I mean, they got a lot going on. So yeah, we've kind of said what social learning is. It's where you, or a skink in this example, watches something happen and then learns to do it itself. Where some individuals are trying things out and going out on a limb and creating new behaviours. Others are just sitting back, chilling, watching them do it. And then when it works, giving it a go themselves. Mm. Um, yeah. And this is I what mean, this paper's working to identify, whether they are actually doing that or it's it's skinks just do what skinks do whether they can learn from just viewing another and whether that's actually changing their behavior yeah so what they did was um they captured a load of female lizards and they split them into either being demonstrators or observers um and there was two different experiments going on and the idea was that some would watch a lizard perform a task some kind of like weird voyeuristic lizard goings on and the others would watch a lizard just chill which was the control to make sure that just watching a lizard doesn't spark their imagination to do crazy stuff um <laughs> they just and become then, inspired yeah wow that lizard that lizard could accomplish anything um, i could do it then, too and then go immediately and collect the food that they needed to get but, yeah and the theory the theory was that the ones which had watched a lizard do something would then be better at doing the thing the lizard they'd watched had done than ones that just watched the lizard chill out and do nothing. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, they did it with two experiments. The first of which was knock the lid off a pot to get the sweet treats. Um, Specifically, so pear-flavoured baby food. Hein yeah, so Heinz Fruity Pear Baby Food. That's other the brand. baby food That's is the available. Yes, other baby food is available. I think there's actually a redundancy in the title of that baby food because pears are fruit. Um but this isn't a, this isn't <laughs> no, the semantics that, podcast. It's actually, it's actually a typo, <laughs> and it's the other type of pear, and it's only fruit that comes in pears. Oh, okay. Fruity yeah, pear. pear, paired fruit. So it's got two types of banana in there, two types of apple. Fruity pear is a bit suggestive. I don't think they would name a baby food that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your baby eating? A fruity pear. That's a bit weird. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so... They gave them this fruity pear. They had to teach them to enjoy baby food because, believe it or not, they're not eating baby food in the wild. Um, well, the point but, is, yeah, you've, you've got to sort of naturalize them into it so you're actually looking at the effect you're wanting to study, not the effect of how bold skinks are to try a new food type. Yeah. So you have yeah, to exactly. give a little bit, um, I suppose statistically you call it like burning for other things where you have these sort of noisy other effects but then do it enough times and they get used to it and you get over that weird variation yeah and so um that like i said the first experiment was watch a lizard knock the lid off a pot and eat the food and fruit fruity goodness inside um and they actually didn't find a difference between those that had watched another lizard do it and those that hadn't basically they all worked out to knock the lid off and eat the fruit because it's not actually that hard mm. um so that experiment was kind of a well, it wasn't duff, but they just go, it just goes to well, show that... It was, like, it was a primer a skink, as well. It was, yeah. So it was partly about... Um, well, they had prior taught the skinks to look in pots, right? They all knew about looking in pots. Yeah. That's well, no, what, they didn't. It, it, this it's, was the training thing to look yeah, in pots. Yeah, it's training yeah. so they know that if you remove the lid, there's a possibility of food under there. 
Yeah. So then when yeah. you move on to test two, which is two dishes, both having food, but one is, you can't open it. They're different colors too, the lids. So there's, they can, what was it? Blue and... Blue and white. Blue and white. Blue one had food. Yeah? Yes. And the white one had, has still had food because you've got to control for the effect of whether they can... Because uh, skinks have a decent sense of smell, so you could just smell out the food and go to the right dish that way. They wanted to pick out that they're picking out by colour, which is the thing that's been manipulated between the two, and that's indicative of which one's actually openable. Yeah, yeah that's right. They didn't, they didn't want the lizards to just be sniffing their way to the goodness. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a different study. Yeah, but because obviously they've got blue and white and they wanted to find out 100% for definite that colour preference wasn't the reason for lizards checking the pots. Mm. And in the, in the second paper we talk about, they actually control for this a different way. But in this one, they um, they decided to do a, another set of experiments on the side just to see whether or not the skinks preferentially selected blue or white. And uh, in their in their thing, to make sure that there was no sort of like observer bias, they got someone to score the results. And they described this person as a researcher from outside the study with no knowledge about lizards. <laughs> <laughs> Completely Can like... you imagine? Can you imagine their shock when they saw the lizards? <laughs> <laughs> what are these tiny creatures that love baby food? Yeah. They can open lids. <laughs> Freaking out. <laughs> tiny scaly man. <laughs> Yeah, I just don't know where you'd find someone who has no knowledge about lizards. Like, I think everyone's heard of a lizard, but there you go. They managed to find someone, and uh, yeah, they found well, the out. Trick, the trick is they actually wiped their memory of lizards. It was a, it was a prior <laughs> lizard expert. That was the only way they got them to convince, to convince them to agree. It's like, yeah, I'll look at some lizards. Be like, ah, oh, well. <laughs> You've got to forget everything you know. Did the old men in black, and then yeah. they were like, what? Lizard, what? Yeah. Yeah, and then so, yeah, but what they did find out was that there's no, they don't have a preference for white or blue. Um, they reckon that most diurnal lizards are tetrachromatic, so they've got crazy wicked eyesight, um, but they, uh, they're they not bothered about the difference between white and blue. So it was a fair mm. experiment, essentially. They weren't just looking for whichever one was nicer coloured. They, uh, they actually were choosing the colour, hopefully based on their experience of what they'd seen uh, the other lizard do. And like you said, there was one with gunge, which is delicious, and one with the gun they couldn't get to. They watched all of the other lizards looking at it. Um, but what they did was, when the ones with, when the um, observer lizards were watching the lizards to learn how to complete the task, the white lids were screwed on so that they couldn't be opened by the other lizards. So all the observer lizards yes. only saw the correct answers. Yeah, the correct answer. Yeah. So they'd only watch lizards open the blue tub and get food. They'd never see them do it on the white ones. So the idea was that after watching this, they'd get this idea in their heads like, oh, hang on a minute, that white one doesn't look to be very good, but that blue one, oh boy, I'm going to get straight in there and eat the gunge. Um, and that's actually what they what they found pretty much, more or less. Yeah, if they watched the lizard get the food in the kind of social learning treatment, um, they got to the blue lid and opened it quick, more quickly and they also made fewer errors. So they were less likely to go for the white pot than lizards, which had just watched a lizard chill out. So they proved that watching a lizard open the blue tub, get the food, made them better at opening the blue tub and getting the food. Yeah, which was a little bit sort of counter to what previous stuff they'd done suggested. Mm. Yeah, it was. Because there were, there were a couple of studies that they'd done prior. One, uh, Riley et al. in 2018 
which was looking at whether a skink being raised in isolation um, affects their learning ability. And there they didn't see anything. You, t- you tend to get with mammals and birds and stuff, individuals that are raised alone tend to be a little bit... Uh, what's Weird. the right word? Anti- antisocial? <laughs> yeah. Weird, yeah. You know, they're not as well... They're not as good at socialising as one uh, being brought up with conspecifics. Well, it's... Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And they it? found that... Well, it didn't really make too much of a difference when they were raised with an unrelated adult, which might be critical. Because mm. you then... Because you do see the ones raised in isolation, um, there is, there are changes to other bits of uh, behaviour. With so, what did they have? They had raised together. You either had a, a dominant and a subordinate skink at the end of the day, and the sort of non-isolation pushed the dominant skink to be more bold, um, but the subordinate skink tended to be a little bit more aggressive less sociable. There are changes happening raised in isolation or with another one, but they're not necessarily the same sort of pants you were seeing in mammals and things. So the the um the skinks when put together, the older skink doesn't automatically take the younger skink under its wing and teach it about the world. They can actually just be dicks to each other. Yeah, so what what sorry, I, I might have messed up what the actual conclusions were. Isolated skinks were more social than the subordinate skinks that were raised in a ah, in a pair or whatever. Okay. So the subordinate skinks became more aggressive over time and the, the dominant skinks became bolder over time. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that you can just tell from a few papers, all from, I think, the same lab, I presume. It's all very similar authors. Um, that there's a lot of different factors influencing a lot of different behaviours and socialness in these lizards. Mm. It's, it's not just the sort of way they are. There's, there's much more going on. Yeah, I remember seeing something about juveniles didn't learn from adult females that were unrelated to them. Um, but then... Biologically speaking, in the wild, a f- an adult female would kill and eat an unknown juvenile. So yeah. you're not necessarily going to be busy learning something from an animal which you fear is about to eviscerate you at any time. <laughs> it's like if you watch, I don't know, if you watch like a bloodthirsty serial killer complete a complex spatial task while you're hiding in the corner of the room, there's not necessarily <laughs> a good chance you'll be able to repeat it. <laughs> Damn, look at him go, solving that complex spatial puzzle. <laughs> yeah. Well, when he gets finished, I'm really going to go in there and do exactly the same thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not frozen with fear. Exactly, um, yeah. But that's, that's, a good, that's a good point, because there's a, the sort of counter-study done by uh, a munch et al., people who actually do the second study we're going to talk about, where they had um, lizards with their, their mates, so their conspecific mate would be better at completing the tasks and learn better. So the more familiar an individual is, it seems to give some sort of boost to how willing they are to take on lessons that the other skink has learned. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because obviously if you consider this learning in the context of the rest of their existence, like skinks aren't an animal which can afford to just chill out on a tree and just go around being a scholar. Like they've got a lot of stuff to worry about. (laughs) Everything's trying to eat them. Other lizards are trying to kill them. They're not just spending their whole day trying to learn from other skinks. 
it, it stands to reason that family is going to be more likely to teach you a lesson because you're not going to be yeah. concerned they're going to try and hurt you. Yeah. So At least in these social living lizards. Well, and they're familiar and there's probably some, like, some level of trial and error where you're like, okay, these ones... It's sort of a self-reinforcing... Closely related means more closely related genes. So there's an evolutionary driver to keep things closely related to you more alive than things that are less closely related to you, right? Yeah, makes so sense, yeah. there's that in the background that, that makes a lot of sense evolutionarily. It's all backing each other up. Mm. And one more thing I want to say before we move on is um, they saw evidence of something called strategic learning, which I'd never heard of before. Sounds like a really boring business buzzword. Um <laughs> But yeah, if they watched, basically, if they watched the lizard get the food too many times, they would actually be more likely to try the other pot because um, I think they considered it might be because there'd be a lot of competition for that one resource. So there'd be like, well, that one resource, I should say. Um, So there'd be a lot of competition for that one resource and that resource might be depleting. So there might be less food in that pot. So they'd reasoned, reasoned argument, just try the other pot. Like, oh, maybe all that food's gone in that pot. Um, And they also put forward the idea that a, a specific type of food might decrease in value over time. So like if you skinks want to get a varied diet, um, so if they keep eating the same baby food and the, in the same pot, mm. they're going to try the other pot because it might contain something different, um, which is interesting as well. But again, you see this sort of counter driver pushing against, you know, just follow the leader stuff. But again, mm. if, you, if you're focused on one resource, that makes the population as a whole a bit more vulnerable. Whether they're actually thinking yeah. that and whether that's actually what's happening is hard to prize apart. But grander scale, it does make a lot of sense. It's also yeah, worth so, um, mentioning that the, the non-social skinks got better over time. So it is demonstrating that they were learning from trials. So you had, two, like, yeah. you had a, a, a counter um, trend for the non social skinks yeah so the non-social ones are actually experimenting on their own and learning to do stuff independently which is cool yeah Yeah. which which is drives perfectly into the point we said right at the very beginning with uh, actual first hand experience in the environment improving success rate so you have those two counter trends right before your eyes and so um, yeah they demonstrated in this paper that female tree skinks use social information to solve a foraging task um, and this is the first time anyone's demonstrated social learning in a family living lizard which is cool um, more social learning experiments from friendly lizards would be great yeah cool paper very cool um, so should we move on to the second paper which is in the f- very much the same vein but slightly different yeah <laughs> This is by Munch, Noble, uh, Botterill, James, Korloff, Halliwell, Wapstra and Weil, published in Biology Letters in, what was it, 2018 as well. Maternal effects impact decision-making in a viviparous lizard. Mm. So, yeah. part of the whole thing with, okay, you've got a smart lizard on your hands, or there are lizards with enough of an ability to, number one, learn about where food is, but also pass that on and learn from conspecifics. There is way more at play here than just how good their brain is. 
Mm, this one's bonkers. Yeah. Um, but so before we get too heavily into the absolute lunacy that is the complexity of this paper, um, should we talk about the species itself, Leolophus wittii? Mm, from Tasmania. Um, yeah, from Orford, Tasmania, uh, also known as White's Rock Skink or White Skink, or in German, Witz Skattelskink. <laughs> Skattelskink. <laughs> Stackelskink. Um, so I think we should call it Stackelskink. And uh, yeah, it looks like a miniature tree-dwelling skink that we've just been talking about, but it's got bigger yellow blotches. It's a bit, it's a bit more handsome, I would argue. Um, it's actually from the same subfamily, which is Aguerninae. Uh, it used to be in the same genus, but recently it got split in 2008 by Gardner et al. Uh, they discovered that Agonia wasn't monophyletic, which obviously taxonomists hate. They were livid, so they changed it. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's not like a good phylogeny of social behaviour, which is what I was hoping to find. I don't think that exists yet, but there is a phylogeny oh, for the... I'm, uh, I'm willing to bet that there needs to be a lot more work on working out yeah, how social which ones are and which species ones are. are and trying yeah. to come up with a usable metric for that because sociality in one species may not be applicable to sociality in another species. I was told um, recently about this this study. They were testing the ability of gibbons um, and everybody had previously thought, oh, gibbons, they're not as smart as the other greater apes. They've got mere lesser ape knowledge. Um, I would but agree it was with that. I know a gibbon, he's an idiot. <laughs> because the gibbon's hands, their thumbs were too small to do the tasks as well as the other, like the other apes. So they were just sort of unfairly at a disadvantage because they had different shaped hands. So um, how to make a having... consistent, uh, a consistent test across all different sort of forms of sociality would be an absolute nightmare, I'm sure. See, I would argue that having stubby thumbs is a type of stupidity. Oh, yeah, stupid, <laughs> stupid gibbons with their tiny thumbs. Yeah. Evolve better. Um, funnily enough, that's not the last time gibbons are going to come up in this podcast. Um, spoiler. <laughs> Damn, more gibbon knowledge. Yeah, I'll see if I can track down, track down the, uh, the paper for that and put it in the show notes, because off the top of my head, I don't have it. That is, that's a cool idea. Um, yeah, so that's the skink. Um, it's from sort of southern areas southern southwestern australia kind of like the the bottom right hand corner of australia we'll say but quite a wide range um and yeah this topic is slightly different now we're talking about decision making um but we're also talking about maternal effects which are just mental um so for those of you who don't know what a maternal effect is it's a situation where the phenotype so how an organism looks, behaves, generally is, isn't only affected by the environment and its genotype, so its genes, which is what you'd expect. Phenotype is usually made up of genetic stuff and like what it's eaten, its experiences, the situation it's in. Um, well, but it's yeah, also, it, it's a culmination of everything, right? Yeah, it's actually it what's, is, yeah. what's the phenot- there and ex- expressed. Yeah, exactly. So the phenotype's everything that it is. Um, but in this instance, we're not just looking at the genes and environment of the individual animal. You, it, its behavior and the way it looks can also be affected by the experiences of its mother. So non-genetic stuff that's happened to the mother, um, it can also affect the outcome of the offspring. So 
that's really, really confusing, and I've probably not explained it very well, but basically it's non-genetic influence on the way a creature looks or behaves based on what's happened to its mother, um, and it can be adaptive or not. Um, so um, an example is stressors. So if the mother, while it's carrying the young, um, is subject to a lot of stress, then it can mean that it has an influence on the offspring. So there was an experiment with... Um, cuckoos i think it was where they like squeeze the bottle uh guy at work was telling me about this he, they basically squeeze the bottle to make a really loud noise near a cuckoo and freak it out and um they just kept doing it over and over again while it was uh carrying eggs and then when its babies hatched out they were more flighty than and, and they were more scared by loud noises than ones which hadn't had this treatment to the mother um, mm. so basically if if the mother undergoes certain stresses it can influence the behavior of their offspring and that can be adaptive so in that case it probably was adaptive because the female had undergone a lot of stressful encounters and um, the babies themselves were more skittish as a result yeah so that's the kind of thing which could potentially happen and in this paper they were looking at this uh, australian skink the Whitstackle skink and trying to work out whether or not changing the food regimens of the females and then the food regimens of the juveniles when they were first born um could actually influence their behaviour and their decision making. Yeah, so testing some more skinks with some more tasks. Yeah, uh, it's bonkers. Very, very similar game plan with. No, they well, they had one that was food related, didn't they? And they had one that was anti predator related. So the food one was very similar food on two elevated blocks, so they couldn't see the food. And then having the skinks learn that one coloured block had food that was actually accessible and the other one didn't. Okay, pretty yeah. simple. Um, and in that regard, well, actually that's just a task. We should probably say, so they had, how many lizards did they have? 70? Yeah, they got they collected 70 pregnant females. Yeah, so that was split 50-50 um, randomly into ones that got more food and ones that got less food. Yeah, some tasty mealworms for these skinks, I believe. Yeah, some were given three mealworms a week and others were given 15 mealworms a week that's a pretty big difference <laughs> yeah some of them must have been real hungry <laughs> oh and it did also worth mentioning it did produce significant differences in the overall weights of those those female skinks too so it is having it's not just that the food's happening it's the food is having an influence it's going all the way and uh, impacting their weight yes yeah yeah completely should we talk about the you you mentioned the um the task the task was learning yeah. that we'll start, a particular color meant task. food yeah um, it's different because the last one we were looking at social learning which is where they were watching another skink do something and trying to learn from that in this one they're learning independently and they're just testing their um, decision making ability yeah. yeah um and so yeah there was one color which le they were supposed to learn to associate with food uh, and uh, one was blue one was white again. But this time they randomised which side was good. So different skinks would associate either blue or white with food. Um, but it would always be consistent. So, yeah, they they, they kind of um, controlled for that colour difference a little bit differently than the previous paper. Yep. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, they, they were basically trying to test um, once the lizard knows that one... Or can the lizard realise that one colour means food over the other? Um, and they were yeah. comparing the ones which had had hungry mothers to the ones which had full mothers. Uh, what did they find out? There was there was a difference. So there was, yeah. Um, so the ones whose mothers had been fed well um, 
they actually did better in the foraging task with colour associations. So they were better at understanding that a particular colour meant food than ones whose mothers had been hungry during their um, gestation, which is crazy. Mm. Um, and then the second task um, was choosing a safe refuge. So the lizards had two, t- two hides to choose from. If they go under one, they can go under there and chill. And if they go under the other one, it constantly gets lifted up and the lizards continue to be chased around by being prodded. Um, yeah, this is and this is the, the anti predator response the anti predator response to being poked uh, yeah. just behind the just behind where the tail attaches. <laughs> yeah, so they just got poked in the butt over and over again until they chose the safe hide. Um yeah. and they were just being judged on how quickly they managed to find the safe refuge. Um and so in that test, what was crazy is that the mothers who had been fed very little, the hungry mothers, their offspring were actually better at the anti-predatory tasks so that they found the safe refuge more quickly using spatial associations to guide their decision than ones who'd mothers who'd been fed well um mm. which is just crazy like um so hungry mothers equals offspring which are better at finding places to hide and full up mothers equals offspring which are better at picking the right color in a foraging task and learning to associate a color with food and that leads to the question of why like why is this the case um, so they describe this thing, this phenomenon called context-dependent anticipatory maternal effects, um, <laughs> which is oh, a yes. real mouthful. And I was reading this. I had to read this a few times because all this is new to me. And you can tell these people are like cognitive experts. It's just like, okay, like I'm not familiar with this literature. So I read it about four times. Basically, natural selection may have shaped the development of decision-making based on what conditions the pregnant female has and then what would be beneficial to the young. Mm. So the theory is a full female, somehow it's better for a female which is well-fed to have offspring which are good foragers, whereas a hungry female makes offspring which are better hiders and that could potentially have some adaptive benefit. Um, Obviously, it's super confusing because it may or may not be the case that these things are deliberately adaptive and that like natural selection is selecting for these effects. It could just be that the lack or abundance of certain resources affected the development of the offspring in the mother and therefore affected their brain development in a different way. And it's just a coincidence. It's just a byproduct of the environment she was in. That's or a it could be, yeah. Yeah, you, it could how be. How do you that, prize those two things apart? Well, that's it. Like, it's that's the next level. Um, mm. And yeah, like I guess the... I guess the way to do that would be to demonstrate that these context-dependent maternal effects are actually beneficial to the offspring in the certain circumstances which pertain to the way the female was. So a hungry female somehow being born into a hungry environment will be more important for you to have good anti-predator response. You'd, you'd kind of expect it to be the other way around where hungry females produced babies that were better at foraging. That would be a lot more of an easy link to put together. Yeah, um, you'd almost have to... I mean, the way you'd, I guess you'd have to do it is have this in a fully wild scenario, I guess, have your supplementary fed females, have your non-supplementary fed females that were you know, low on food have the offspring test the offspring and give them each like some sort of index for cognitive ability on certain tasks and then see what the survival rate is yeah and actually Mm. pull it all the way through and say okay did the ones that improved had improved anti-predator choices actually go on to survive better or is it just you know not actually having too much of an effect at all so it is 
likely just a random uh, effect from having a mother that was low on food. Yeah, I think if it, has the, the, if it has the survival stuff at the end, then yeah. you can start saying which ones are which ones are actually beneficial. Yeah, but designing that experiment would be so hard because oh, it would creating be crazy an, hard create creating the environment which both uh, causes the lack of food and replicates the natural environment where there would be a lack of food once the baby is born. Like that's that's no mean feat. And then try and control for all these other things which might influence it. Yeah, because there are there's a cool study that they cite a little bit late, later on a uh, one with. Uh, temperature affecting the cognitive ability of geckos with a warmer climate making them stupider and oh, yeah, harming that, yeah. their survival which was a little bit worrying with a, with a warming planet but let's say these skinks have an equal or not even an equal effect like the geckos were having but even a, a subtle effect but a non-zero effect like it, it, temperature could be making making a difference and if you're not controlling for that then effects that you're ascribing to a supplementary fed or non-supplementary fed female would go completely out the window. Mm. There's so much to try yeah. and control for. It would have to be it would have to be lab, but you can't do the survival stuff in the lab. Yeah, it's incredibly complicated and um I hopefully I mean we are not the people to come up with and design these experiments. <laughs> but oh, no. hopefully not in a, hopefully not in this will shot. be the icing on like you know this not the icing on the cake. This will be the tip of the iceberg, the other kind of ice. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, to me, this the reason this paper was cool because it, you know, maternal effects are something I'd, I'd heard of but didn't know much about. And um, yeah, it basically, it just goes to show that animals are made up of more than just their genes and their environment. Um, there's other things at play, maternal effects, and obviously there are other epigenetic factors. But like, yeah, so just natural selection, the, the potential for natural selection to um, extend beyond the genes of an animal is just like amazing to me it is and to then have all these factors working together is just a recipe for well confusion <laughs> confusion yeah, from our basically. standpoint but uh hopefully from the lizards and things point and their sort of genes perspective uh really beneficial because yeah. that is a generation level time scale and you're having a decent effect on potentially on survival, but certainly on cog cognitive ability for certain types of task. That's really mm -hmm. rapid. Just a generation. I mean, how, what's how long's a generation for a skink? I would imagine like a year. Yeah, maybe two. Yeah, no, so, I think probably two because they talked about uh, sub adults. Oh yes, they have to, the the family groups with several mm. generations living together, don't they? Yeah. So. In terms of dealing with a big overarching climate shift or introduced species or habitat change, something like that, it gives you a little bit more hope that if these generational or phenotypic changes can be quite rapid, then maybe they can be quite rapid in a very beneficial way and keep these skinks going for years to come. I like that. Some optimism to finish on. Um, oh, it's so, so rare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like savour it. Um, cool. So yeah, social skinks. Um, Australian skinks, be they tree dwellers or rock dwellers. Um, yeah, they, they're doing all kinds of mad stuff. They're making friends with each other and they're learning. Um, mm. 
But Very learning potentially in different ways compared to mammals and birds and things. It's all, yeah. yeah, it's all interesting and fascinating and kind of unique. Yeah. Um, cool. So uh, shall we shall we move on to the species of the bi week? The species of the bi week. Let's do it. Okay, so charisma, wood, limb, liang, uh, 2017. Thought there was going to be another person there. A new species of swamp dwelling skink, Tithocincus, from Singapore and Peninsular Malaysia, and published in the Raffles Bulletin of Zoology. So we've gone from the trees to the swamp. I suppose you get trees in a swamp. So, well, yeah, isn't the definition of a swamp like a wetland with trees? Yeah, as opposed to a marsh which has fewer trees. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, stupid comment. Um, <laughs> well, these, these skinks don't live in the trees, do they? They're filthy swamp dwellers, mate. They're filthy swamp dwellers. Um, yeah, new species of swamp learning skink. Um, I haven't got a lot of notes on this, so I'm relying on looking at the paper. So they looked at a gene, didn't they? And, uh, well, there's already loads of species in this genus. Um, and there was some suggestion that uh, this population in the sort of middle of peninsula Malaysia might be something a little bit different. And so um, there was a big genetic study, admittedly only using one gene, like I say. And uh, yeah, they were looking at whether or not this Tithocincus was a new species. And it appears to be. Otherwise, it does. the paper wouldn't have been published, I guess. We, yeah, we wouldn't be talking about it. Um, so, and I mean, what do we know? And it was morphometrics as well, right? Yeah. So characters and then a sort of PCA to separate out. Oh, that's right, yeah. And they do look very different um, to their congeners. Um, and obviously they are isolated geographically as well. Well, should we talk about the name? The name, if I can find it. Ah, oh, yes. Tithocincus temasicensis, which is derived from the word temasek, which means sea town in Old Javanese. And... Um, yeah, it represents the earliest recorded name of a settlement in Singapore. So that's really, really, really awesome. Yeah, I like that. It's got history to it. It's got native language to it. It's got actually where they're at. Yeah. And then the and common name ends... being Singapore Swamp Skink. Yeah, so it's the, <laughs> it's, the, it's the Swamp Skink from the sea town. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um yeah, essentially, they're, they're you know they go on to talk about um, the fact that these sort of swamps are actually hotbeds for biodiversity, as you might expect. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, essentially, they've been quite poorly explored because people don't like getting wet feet or trudging through the mud. Everyone remembers that scene in Lord of the Rings where they're in a swamp, super long, super boring. Um, so <laughs> Wait, that's mostly wh- put people off. Which one are you talking about? The dead marshes? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so a marsh. Oh, I see what you did there. Uh, All right, then. The Swamp of Despair in Neverending Story. Okay. There's there's a relevant one. Nice. Um, no one wants to go there because the horse sinks, super sad, cry, cry, cry. But would more um, people want to go if they were stylish-looking swamp skinks? I don't know, man, because there's that giant tortoise, which you think is a hill, but turns out to be a tortoise. And that didn't... I mean, that didn't affect my decision to be put off. Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose if... Yeah. But swamp skink, maybe? 
maybe if there's a swamp skink it might change my mind but anyway um yeah what does it look like it's uh sort of a quite small how big are they adult svl of 35 millimeters for the hollow type and a tail length of 40 millimeters tail longer than body Mm, not to be trusted not to be trusted exactly you never know (laughs) what they're doing but it's quite a cool little skink like it's very shiny um it's got a pink belly um it's got kind of like fiery orangey red sides with a darker back um very cool little skink um it, the one in the photo looks like sort of a bit like it's up to no good don't you think it's got like a it's eyes half shut and it's sort of like creeping about sneaky skink. On a leaf yeah yeah you haven't de- we haven't described what they look like they're brown uh quite slender tiny skink legs um they appear to have some sort of le- uh what's the right word for stripes that go along the body longitudinal yeah, longitudinal stripes, but like not fully attached. So it's sort of a deep, deep, slightly iridescent brown, but with orange uh, lines going along from eye all the way down to the tail. Which is yeah, they're pretty sort of fancy looking. Yeah, it is. It's quite a jazzy one. Um, but really, really small. Really small. It's important to get your head around how small they are. So small that they get eaten by Aetullus. Do they? Yes. A juvenile was taken from the gut of Aetula, like Terrasans? Yeah, maybe. So, oh, yeah, that one. Isn't that the one which... Um... No, it's not the one. But yeah, that's cool. So yeah, they found one in the gut of that crazy vine snake. And they also found them by accident when they were fishing for fish. They kept getting caught in the nets. Yeah. And they, so they live along the stream sides. Which makes a lot of sense if they live in a swamp. Mm, the photo looks very nice. It's very sort of generic sort of swampy stream with some nice ferns some sort of quite cloudy water lots of leaves and foliage overhanging the stream that's the kind of habitat these little predators live in yeah <laughs> well i don't have much else on them to be to be fair that's that's pretty much it lovely little brown pretty swamp skink yeah okay so yeah new species of skink tithosynchus temecasensis Temeca, Tema Sekensis, hard one to say. Um, the old sea town swamp skink um, yeah. from Singapore and the vicinity of Tanjung Malin Perak, Peninsula Malaysia. And um, yeah, third species in the swamp clade of Tithosynchus. <laughs> the swamp clade. <laughs> oh man, what a clade to be a part of. <laughs> the dampest clade of all. Yeah, well. Second dampest, probably. Yeah, yeah, I guess aquatic. So, um, should we move on to some any other business? You got any other yeah. business? Um, do I have any other business? The only... Oh, no, wait, I should do. Didn't we get a correction for something? I've got the correction here from uh, from Llewellyn. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, yeah, so um, I, we got a correction from, Llewellyn, from Llewellyn Reese, uh, who said... A minor correction for episode 39, moving by swinging from branch to branch. So just to put this back in perspective, in episode 39, I said that gibbons were brachioderms. <laughs> we were talking about gibbons, of course we were. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I love gibbons. We are <sighs> talking about gibbons. I said they were brachioderms. Well, as Cleon rightly points out, um, gibbons are brachiators who move by brachiation. Uh, so... They do this thing where they swing with their own mem- mem- like momentum. Um, 
Yeah. I don't know why I said brachioderm. Because it sounds um, so, yeah, thanks. and it's easier yeah, to say. Yeah, it does sound cool. Yeah. So thanks for pointing that out. Um, brachyderm, I looked it up. It's not a thing. It's not a word. Um, <laughs> if it was a thing, I don't know. It might be a cross between a brachiator and a pachyderm. <laughs> so like a, an elephant that's swinging through the trees. <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's what the trunk was developed for. It's just now yeah. with the overabundance of elephant food, they've gone fat and lazy. But yeah, they uh, ancestrally, the they, uh, they swang through the trees using their trunks. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you very much, Llewellyn. That's a great point. I'm glad you pointed that out. And um, what's funny is that I actually used the incorrect term while I was um, doing a tour around the zoo quite recently. So I miseducated quite a lot of people if they were listening. Excellent. Um, that's, yeah. well, <laughs> no longer. No. <laughs> Um, don't even think miseducate is the word and then that, that so that's our correction for the week so yeah cheers awesome there's one other thing we have a new Patreon who is Philip Iovino so thank you very much Philip much appreciated yes thank um, you yeah if you've got a question for us ask it um, yeah I think that's about it isn't it I think we're about we're about there I think so I think we've done learned lizards good justice good justice cool just justice. <laughs> We're meeting out good justice. Good justice for learned lizards. Cool. Um, so much cool stuff has happened in herpetology this week. Um, oh, yeah. Which we I don't know if there's really time to talk about, but there was that new siren discovered in, in Florida. Do you see that? The reticulated siren. Yeah, the ginormous eel monster. Really cool thing. Um, so that was just great. Mental that that's been hiding in America all this time it's not even like ugly it's actually a really pretty animal <laughs> it's not even like a tiny swamp skink no you'd think that like it would be I mean the sirens the sirens are just mental aren't they they've got two arms or even two like flappy I mean they're like gills what the hell is that <laughs> <laughs> the things on their faces they're, yeah they're external gills aren't they Scale gills, just bonkers. It doesn't have any arms. Uh, Jesus, it's mental. But yeah, so that um, that paper just came out this week, I think. Uh, yeah, it's the largest creature to be described in the United States for over a hundred years, and it just looks like an eel, but it's an amphibian. It basically, looks like an axolotl that's been stretched out um, and, <laughs> and had, had its, its legs, legs removed. removed. Yeah, and it, but it's also got really pretty reticulated patterning, which I really like. It's a cool thing. Mental. Mental that's been hiding in America. Yeah? Yeah. So David Steen was part of this work, who's um, big on Twitter, big Twitter herpetologist. Cool. Mental. Yeah, I've got nothing to say about it. No, just big old eel thing. Looks like an eel, but it's, uh, it's actually a, a siren. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Probably, yeah, sorry about that. It's a bit of a ramble. Anyway, that's about it for this week, I think. Wait, that, that was all the, the massive herp news coming in the past week or so. It's just one siren. Well, yeah, because like, we do... There was some other stuff as well, but like, we'll do a news niche episode soon and talk about it, maybe. Yeah, I think we're actually overdue for one, because I think the next one should be a news niche, but uh, it doesn't it's need not to be. be. Yeah, no. so whatever. No. Okay. Sweet. Um, thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com, facebook.com slash herphighlights, or Twitter at herphighlights. Um, yeah. Mm. With Christmas coming up, 
Check out our range of sweet, sweet t-shirts and toad-related goodness. <laughs> oh, there needs to be... Oh, there was a damn good comment on Facebook that there needs to be more yeah. toads. And I cannot Yannick agree that, I think. <laughs> strongly enough. If yeah. I had more time to draw more toads, I would be drawing more toads. But time is something that I do not have. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.